Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, at just in time. It's the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. We've been focusing on GI and abdominal pathology this month. Last week, we had a great lecture by one of our third-year residents, Farzan Navi, on hepatic encephalopathy. Jenny, let's dive into the core content. Let's do it. Hepatic encephalopathy describes a spectrum of neuropsychiatric abnormalities seen in patients with liver dysfunction. When the liver is damaged, it doesn't properly process waste products. These waste products, primarily ammonia, then build up in the blood. We don't know exactly why these cause encephalopathy, but it's thought that they may be somewhat similar to neurotransmitters, which can lead to a dysfunctional neural transmission that ultimately results in altered mental status and motor abnormalities. When a patient with a history of liver disease presents with altered mental status or motor abnormalities, hepatic encephalopathy is going to be high up on the list. When evaluating the patient, start with a good history and physical, and ultimately that's how you're going to get this diagnosis because it really is a clinical diagnosis. It's not really reliant on a single lab value. Right. So the cognitive impairments you might see in these patients could be subtle in patients with mild disease. The first symptom often is a disturbance in sleep. Later on in the disease, the patient may have alterations in memory and attention. The patient may be disoriented, they might have inappropriate behavior, and ultimately, later in severe disease, they might be somnolent or present in a coma. Motor findings include bradykinesia, which is the slowing of movements, asterixis, or the flapping of the hands, slurred speech, nystagmus, and sometimes either hyperactive or occasionally lost deep tendon reflexes. So the next step here in the diagnosis is a thorough evaluation for all the other causes of altered mental status. It's important not to let yourself get tunnel vision. Liver patients have many other reasons they can present with confusion. They're often coagulopathic and consequently at risk for intracranial hemorrhage, even spontaneous with no trauma. Often they have a history of ETOH abuse, may suffer from frequent falls, and that can lead to their subdural hematoma. If they have a history of alcohol use or are otherwise malnourished, they could have Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome as well. They're often going to be on diuretics, so hyponatremia is something else we have to think about. And then, of course, as in many patients who present with altered mental status, we have to consider toxins and, of course, all the infectious processes. Right. There are a gazillion things that can cause encephalopathy. So when a patient with liver disease presents, we want to thoroughly evaluate them for a cause. We often think we might need to get an ammonia level to help make this diagnosis. And if it's high, then great. That's why they're encephalopathic and our work here is done. But that's really not the case. In fact, an ammonia level isn't really helpful in the emergency department at all. If you check ammonia levels in patients without encephalopathic symptoms, a significant proportion of them, up to even 69%, may have an elevated level. Yeah, so an ammonia level is really more useful on the inpatient side where they're used to monitor the efficacy of ammonia-lowering medications, but it doesn't really have that much of a role in the acute diagnostic algorithm for hepatic encephalopathy. Now, we're going to get them, and I think they can be useful if you know what the patient's baseline ammonia level is. So if their ammonia level at baseline is like 13, that's what it was when they got discharged from the hospital the last time they came with hepatic encephalopathy, and now it's 13 again, it may be unlikely that that is going to be the cause, but again, it still is a possibility. Getting an ammonia level and then pinning your diagnosis on hepatic encephalopathy, though, can be a mistake because you're going to miss all of the other possible causes. And once you've ruled out causes like sepsis or trauma, you also want to think about whether there is an inciting factor for this patient's hepatic encephalopathy. Things to consider are constipation, which because of decreased GI motility allows for increased ammonia absorption as well as GI bleeding. Once you've evaluated the patient for all those other causes and you've settled on the diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy, how are you going to initiate treatment? The mainstay of treatment is going to be lowering that ammonia level, or at least that's the marker that we're using to gauge the success of our treatment. 
We can do this in a couple of different ways. Lactulose lowers the colonic pH to around five, converting ammonia to ammonium, which is not absorbable. Additionally, the hyperosmolar load of the lactulose is a cathartic effect on the GI tract, leading to increased bowel motility and allows for less time for the ammonia to be absorbed. In addition to lactulose, we often use oral antibiotics that are non-absorbable. Most commonly, we use rifaximin. The idea here is that the antibiotic kills the gut bacteria responsible for producing the ammonia, thus reducing blood ammonia levels and the encephalopathy symptoms. Yeah, and if you watch TV now, you see there's like rifaximin commercials all over the place for IBS. It's a little bit different. This is probably where it's a little bit more proven to be efficacious. Right. So the last major point that Farzad made was to be cautious with your sedation medications because these patients have liver failure. And a lot of the things that we use on a common basis, particularly benzodiazepines, are metabolized in the liver. So decreased liver function means that they're going to be decreased metabolization and the risk for not only over sedation, but prolonged sedation. Now, Jenny, I got into trouble with this when I was a resident. I remember we had a patient who came in with hepatic encephalopathy, was a little agitated. I gave him like 10 of Valium for sedation. And mm -hmm. let me tell you something. He didn't wake up for like three days. I mean, literally, <laughs> he was out for three days. And when he woke up, everyone was like, oh, I guess he's OK now. Yeah, but I bet you got to tube him. Well, see, now that was the thing. He didn't even lose his airway reflexes. He was just sedated. So he ended up going to the unit. So we use a unit bed up for no reason. And he was just sedated for a long time. And they couldn't even tell whether he was responding. So that's where I learned the faux pas of giving a, a dose of benzodiazepine to Whoops. somebody without a liver. So Farzan turned to one of our esteemed toxicology attendings, Bob Hoffman, to get his opinion on what sedating medications we should use if we need to. So Bob still likes the benzodiazepines to sedate the patients, but he sort of recommends a lesser used benzodiazepine, which is oxazepam, because it's not metabolized by the liver. Now, in the absence of oxazepam, because I don't know that everyone's going to have that, lorazepam or Ativan is probably your next best bet. Great. So let's review some big take-home points for hepatic encephalopathy. First, make sure to keep a broad differential in a patient in whom you're considering the diagnosis. And even once you've diagnosed hepatic encephalopathy, look for underlying causes like constipation or a GI bleed. Second, don't get hung up on the ammonia level in the ED. Hepatic encephalopathy is ultimately a clinical diagnosis. And last, be cautious with your sedation medications. You don't want to pull a swami. <laughs> well, that's going to be all for the Core EM podcast this week. Head on over to the site at coreem.net where we've got a ton of great core content EM. Coming up this week on Wednesday, we're going to have a core post on perimortem C-section. And on Thursday, a journal update on the utility of lactates in upper GI bleed. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you next week. <laughs>